Hello, and welcome to the New Testament Setting Podcast. As we get started, I want to encourage you to share this podcast with other people, to like it, to leave a review, and to subscribe or follow or whatever it is you do on your platform. It really helps the channel out. So, as we get started, what are we going to talk about today? Well, the big thing that I want to talk about today is religion in the Greco-Roman world. So, what do I mean by that? When I talk about religion in the Greco-Roman world, some of you may be asking the question, okay, how does this matter? Isn't this about the New Testament setting? Isn't this supposed to be about the New Testament? Well, religion in the Greco-Roman world is extremely important for understanding the New Testament because that is the religion that was going on around the time that the New Testament is the events of the New Testament are happening and the New Testament itself is being written. So we need to understand this context of Greco-Roman religion in the New Testament. Uh, the other thing that some of you are thinking is, oh, I already understand this topic. They were all a bunch of pagans. They believed in multiple gods. End of story. Moving on. Well, I want to avoid simplifications because not every person was... So, let's go ahead and move forward. So, when we talk about religion in the Greco-Roman world, first of all, we're not going to be talking about Judaism, because, or second, what we call Second Temple Judaism, because we'll probably do a separate video for that. But specifically, when we're talking about religion in the Greco-Roman world, we're looking at um, the religions that were practiced within the Roman Empire, by those who were influenced by Greek and Roman culture. Now, what is the primary religion? Well, the primary religion is polytheism, meaning there are multiple gods. There are many different gods that have many different views. And you have Asclepius, who is the god of healing. Uh, you have Jupiter, who or Zeus, on the Greek side, who's the head of all the gods. And you have... All of these other different gods that are impactful and that are seen as being important. Now, these gods come into play when we look at the New Testament, particularly in, in Acts, right? So in Acts, you see uh, Paul and Barnabas going into one area where they're actually mistaken for Zeus and Hermes, where people actually think that... Barnabas is Zeus and that Paul is Hermes because Paul was doing a lot of the talking most likely and Hermes is the messenger God. So they were about to sacrifice a bull to Barnabas and Paul before they cry out and say, no, 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 that's, we're just men like you, right? So this context of worshiping multiple gods um, is a major part of the context of the New Testament. As Christianity starts to spread, um, it's spreading within an atmosphere of people believing that there are gods, plural, multiple gods, and that these gods often take on human characteristics. And, and in a lot of ways, the gods of the Greco-Roman world are gods whose human characteristics are dialed up to ten. Greed, sexual passion, uh, power, strength, um, all dialed up 
to 10 through the roof. That's very much an accurate depiction of many of these gods as portrayed in literature that we have access to. So, so that's one thing. It's polytheistic. There's multiple gods, and the gods are often human-like in characteristics or in portrayal. So the next thing that we need to understand is that there is a fixation on keeping the gods happy. There is this intense desire to make sure that all of the gods are happy because this is connected with how well life goes for your community. So it's important for us to understand that in the Greco-Roman world, they did not have this idea of a separation of church and state. There was no separation between the government and the and the religious um, life of the community. The idea is religion, particularly when we say religion, we mean pleasing the gods, keeping the gods happy. That is intimately connected with how well your family and your community survives and operates. Because in their mind, there's tons of things that they are an absolute... Um, have an absolute lack of control over. They cannot control the harvest. They cannot control natural disasters. They cannot control disease. There's so many things that they cannot control. And when these things go awry, the answer is often, hey, the gods are angry at us. So in their minds, keeping the gods happy is directly connected with the health and well-being of your family, of your community, and then by extension of political and government power, right? So there was no separation there. Those things are intimately connected, which is often hard for us as Westerners to imagine. If you make the gods unhappy, then you could hurt everyone in your community, which is going to be very strange when you have these Christians coming about who do not want to make sacrifices to the gods and who do not have idols or the typical types of outward representations of the gods that people would expect. Um, that's going to be very complicated. Uh, not as much in the New Testament, but especially in uh, church history early on. So, how does this idea of we have to keep the gods happy, how does that influence... New Testament passages. Well, one place it influences, again, in the book of Acts, is you have this one case where Paul is in Athens, the center of Greco-Roman philosophy, and he gives this speech at the Areopagus. Sometimes people will call it Mars Hill. Um, but at the Areopagus, this place of philosophy where people are all about thinking about the way the gods work and the way the world works. Um, and he points to the fact that he noticed that there was this statue that he recently saw. And the statue that he recently saw was a statue to the unknown god. Now, the whole idea here, this statue to the unknown god, um, the whole idea here is that in the Greco-Roman world, they had this view that you needed to keep the gods happy. But what if we don't know all of the gods? Sure, 
the Greeks and the Romans have all these ideas about who the gods are, what their gods over, what their names are. But what if we missed one? What if there's one god out there who we fail to sacrifice to because we didn't know about him? And then that god gets mad at us and it makes the life of our community um, and even us individually angry. So their way of dealing with this is, hey, we'll make a statue, an idol, to the unknown god. And so, hey, gods, if there's a god or two or three out there that you th- that you're mad because we're not making sacrifices to you, then hey, guys, how this unknown god, it's for you. This is for you. Y'all, these sacrifices are for you. So that is something that Paul actually draws on. And Paul says, hey, yeah, there's an unknown God. There's a God you don't know. And let me tell you about him. And then he tells them about uh, Jesus and specifically the uh, the God of uh, the Israelites. Um, and he introduces them and just talks about just the great things that God has done. And what Jesus means in this reality. So, another place where you see this fact, this reality of um, we have to keep the gods happy is kind of tied up in uh, Paul's ministry, again in the book of Acts, Paul's ministry in a place called Ephesus. And while Paul is in this area called Ephesus, a lot of people start to turn toward God, toward Christianity. They start to accept Christianity. And in the midst of this acceptance, in the midst of this, um, many of these people give up um, their idols, they stop buying idols, uh, they burn all of their books, their uh, magic books, their books of different incantations, they burn these things, and as a result of burning these things, um, it actually does two things. One, it hurts the economy, because there's an entire economy that's built around selling these things particularly the silversmiths guild, is going to stir up a riot. But it does something else. It also risks insulting the god, um, sometimes called Dionysus or uh, Diana or Artemis, um, but the god that was seen as most important here in this region of Ephesus, where there was a big statue, a big shrine to uh, this god, um, there's the idea that so many people are turning their backs on worship to Artemis and worshiping um, this god instead and turning from all worship is that it is insulting the god that is the patron god of the city and that this is not just harmful. This is not just sacrilegious. It's actually harmful to our city, to our people, and specifically to the reputation of our God. To the point where when they actually try to talk the mob down, one of the things that the person trying to talk the mob down says is, look, everybody knows that we are all about Artemis, that Artemis is lifted up here. Everybody knows about Artemis of Ephesus. So they try to say, well, yeah, they can't really totally take away the view um, that everyone sees how great Artemis is. What's Ephesus? It's what we're about. Everyone knows that. So 
you see this real fixation on making sure you keep the gods happy, and you see that there. Well, there's another aspect of Greco-Roman religion that's very important, and you saw a hint of it um, in the story I just told, right? In Ephesus, you see a hint of that. And the hint is where they're burning their the books of magic and these books of incantations and other things. Well, this idea of kind of folk religion, this idea of kind of folk religion or or superstition or belief in omens and something else similar that we call augury, um, this these superstitions are extremely important when you connect them with the ancient world. So there's this idea that, yes, you want to keep the gods happy by making sacrifices. But there's also this whole aspect of how do we live our lives personally. First, how do we know what to do with our lives? And two, how do we protect ourselves from evil spirits and evil things that might seek to harm us? So, or other people using these evil forces in order to harm us. So what you see happening in the ancient world is you see this important concept of omens and being able to uh, read omens. If something happens, oh, that's a good omen. Oh, that's a bad omen. Uh, something called augury, which is this idea of people killing and sacrifices an animal and then looking in its entrails or then looking at how the birds are moved and or some other type of thing in order to get a hint from the gods of what's pleasing them and what's not, of what's good and what's bad, if something good is going to happen or something bad is going to happen. So there's very much this emphasis on um augury on good omens or bad omens, um, having dreams and visions, and then also being able to um, manipulate the gods or manipulate the supernatural through spells or incantations or other types of things. So one way that this pops up is the spell books um, that talked about in the book of Ephesus, but also there are many cases where people have this idea of where there's power, and if you say a certain couple of words and invoke the authority of a certain few words, then you can use the power and authority of those words, of those things, in order to do something. Uh, for example, you see uh, certain Jewish uh, exorcists trying to exorcise a demon, again in the book of Acts, um, by saying, oh, we're doing this through the God who Paul talks about. And basically it doesn't work, right? But what they're doing is they're just doing something very typical. We use different spells or incantations or certain words in order to get the supernatural to do what we want to do. Uh, we see examples of this in archaeology where we find many different things, uh, small little inscriptions that were put inside little amulets around your neck or something like that. Um, that had some sort of spell, and the idea was that this spell was going to protect you, or this verse, or this scripture, or this magic thing is going to protect you. So, with that in mind, again, we see um, we see that kind of popping up in Acts, but it's not just Acts, right? We see this fixation on being able to properly live your life according to 
what the gods say or making the gods happy, uh, we see that show up in the Gospels. In particularly, we see this show up with Pilate's wife. Pilate's wife has a vision, and she has this vision that, hey, you need to leave this guy Jesus alone. Um, something bad is going to happen. Um, if you do anything, I had a dream. And you see, this is really kind of surprising. And this goes even further to um, Pilate kind of wanting to let Jesus go. But again, ultimately, the political situation leads him to not letting him go. But the fact that she had a dream would be seen as an omen of, hey, you need to watch out. In the Greco-Roman mind, this would have been, oh, wow, something's going on here. You need to watch out. Be careful. If the gods are given a dream, they're given a vision, you need to be careful here. But uh, I want to also kind of bring in the fact that in the Greco-Roman world, there's not, it's not always as simple as what we just said, right? Um, also, you have a group called mystery cults or mystery religions. Um, I'm not going to go a lot into mystery religions because they don't come up in the New Testament itself. Uh, the New Testament itself very much. Um, mystery religions are basically these religions, these kind of cults that are very secretive, that have um, very specific religious practices. Again, you do not see them pop up very much in the New Testament itself. However, in early church history, people will accuse or think of Christianity as being a mystery religion, um, even though really it's just an extension of uh, a sect of Second Temple Judaism that is building on messianic hope um, through Jesus, uh, they'll accuse it of being one of these mystery religions or mystery cults. But the other thing I do want to talk about that's important when we look at this discussion, that's Greek philosophy. Because the idea that everyone follows the Greco-Roman gods, the Greco-Roman gods, uh, that everyone is a polytheistic is polytheistic in this sense, kind of ignores the fact that there is among philosophers um, there is a differing view um, that would kind of shed doubt on this idea of multiple gods, right? So within Platonic philosophy in particular, there's this idea of of one creator god, a demiurge that brings all things into creation. Uh, this is an idea that will be picked up by the Gnostics later on. Um, but there's this idea that there's this great creator being that that's a singular creator being. Now, again, this is different in that the philosophers wouldn't stop making sacrifices. They would still make a sacrifice here and there to gods. They, they didn't care anything of it. Even those who kind of dismissed the, the pagan pantheon of gods didn't really have any commitment to say, oh, we're not going to make a sacrifice. They would still do that. So they would stay engaged in the community, still making sacrifices, still doing those things, even though they're kind of like, oh, you know, uh, we don't necessarily believe that there is, uh, that this particular God you named is real, but hey, we'll make the sacrifice anyway. So Christianity is, along with Judaism, unique in that, um, they will not make sacrifices to the gods of the Romans and Greeks because they see themselves as being uh, beholden only to God who is a jealous God and who does not allow that kind of behavior. 
So hopefully this does a good job of giving you an overview of um, the Greco-Roman world's religious practices and how that can help us understand certain passages in the New Testament. Again, I didn't give you a rundown of everything, just some things, uh, but hopefully this is enough to help. Thanks, and please make sure that you like, subscribe, share this with friends. Please help us out. And then also, don't forget, I have a book out called Facing the Mob. Check that out as well.